2: So what game is this that you're playing? I
3: can't can't really talk about it and play at the same time because it'll break my concentration.
4: I'm like pushing this thing.
3: Okay, we're wearing... Oh no, he's going to beat me. See, I'm talking now. We're we're wearing um, headsets that measure our brainwaves.
0: Player two, your neurons appear to be
3: misfiring. My name is Gordy Slack and I'm playing Mind Flex with my son, Leo.
2: Does it hurt to have that headset on and and think about moving the ball? Well it doesn't
5: hurt to think about it, but I have this like thing clipped to my ear.
3: That's just the ear clip that measures skin conductivity, I think.
5: Oh I got it.
2: Play again. Up until now, our communication with computers and other machines has required conscious physical interface.
6: Whether we're flipping a switch Hey, uh, we could use some illumination in this studio here. Or browsing the web Hang on, is next week a holiday? I'll just look that up. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. I'm
2: Molly Bentley. But what if we could interact with computers more directly without these interface devices? Throw out the keyboard as well as the mouse, the joystick, the microphone, the stylus.
6: I know. Those of you with a BlackBerry superglued to your palm or a Bluetooth jutting from your ear may ask, how much more direct can we get? Well, as direct as a late-night used car TV salesman, that's what. Do they still have those? Lamentably, they do.
2: Okay, I guess I don't stay up late enough. So that our wishes are immediately understood by our machines, or at least in the time it takes to have a thought and send an electrical signal down an axon to another neuron.
6: Our brain has billions of neurons. It's one complicated thinking machine Evolution supercomputer, maybe, although there are debates about whether or not the brain really is a computer, the goal for some is to connect these two thinking devices. But how can we connect a brain directly to a computer?
2: We've talked with computer scientist Jan Rabai on this program about the concept
6: of ubiquitous sensing. The idea of sensors being everywhere, around us, on us. He envisions a time when we're surrounded by devices that collect data and send it on so that interacting with computers could be as simple as walking into a room. It could
4: start when your day starts. I wake up in the morning Hmm. and I go to the bathroom. You have your mirror. The mirror is an interface device. I could actually project information on that mirror. What's the weather look like today?
2: Sunny, 70 degrees.
4: Great. And traffic?
2: Heavy traffic on the bridge.
4: I think I'll ride my bike. And maybe there's messages.
2: New email from Molly.
4: Read email.
2: Why aren't you at work yet?
4: Reply, it's Saturday. And I interact with that display on the mirror, which is a set of sensors. That's an example. Is my Klingon uniform ready for the Star Trek convention?
2: No. Cleaners need more time for mustard stain.
4: So I don't need anything. It's actually all around me. It allows me to interact with the latest that's going on. How about the Romulan, then? By just having this immersion in the sensory world.
6: That's a lot of sensing pleasure. Too much? Is
2: the immersion in the sensory world necessarily an advantage I mean I could see how some people might feel that I don't want to be immersed in the swarm I don't want sensors recording everything that sure. I do and I don't know if there's an advantage to dictating my memos in the bathroom when I could just go into my study and sure. and get onto a computer so what is the advantage of this world
4: well there's a variety of them right and, and, and I fully agree there's also every positive side is always something which could be negative right? that's always true with that whatever technology you talk about this always the case so, indeed, you have privacy issues, there's security concerns, all those type of things that happen. But at the same time, it's ease of use. If seen, you look at the last 10 years and what happened with the evolution of how we made information available to a broad range of people, just the ease of use, the ease of accessing information opens it up to much larger... Community. I look at the tablets, for instance. How many more people now suddenly elderly people, people who had we have handicaps, or basically they have suddenly access to things they didn't have before, through very simple interfaces and so on. So this would make it even easier. You don't have to worry about a complex device that you have to carry with you. Now you say, I want to get interactive information. I basically can do this on the fly in the most. I would say, logical way of doing it. As I said, we're basically trained to deal with computers through very arcane interfaces. Let's get rid of that training and really start rethinking the way we do interfacing. Another example of where it's already happening is in the gaming. In the past, again, game machines were very arcane. You had a weird type of keyboard you had to use. Today, with devices like Kinect and the Wii, suddenly a whole bunch of people start playing games of a variety of things. Play a tennis game by just standing in your, in your living room and you basically can hit some balls. And that can be extended to many other ways. For instance, if you wanna do online shopping, it's a very good example, right? Online shopping, you wanna go shopping for clothes. It's a really hard thing to do. Now, if I would have it around me again, I have my sensor so that I basically can map my body into a real model with the right dimensions. Now I can go to a online store and look at clothes and say, do they fit me or not? And you can project this right on the spot.
2: Yes, but Jan, you can also go to the store and actually try on the clothes. There's an old-fashioned way that you can go shopping, which is to try on the clothes in the store and not just be... What I worry about is, this, is the isolation that may occur. If mm-hmm. we can do everything without leaving our bathrooms or without leaving mm-hmm. our living rooms, mm-hmm. we might never see another human being in the flesh.
4: Uh, that's, that's a very good point. And obviously, there's always going to be striking a balance, right? You see it re- already happening with social networking, right? You don't really have to talk to people. You just go on the Internet, then you basically go to Facebook or whatever it is, and if you're social networking. It's going to strike a balance. And, and, and indeed, there's a lot of value in terms of live meetings. That's never going to be replaced by all those technologies. But at the same time, if we can avoid, for instance, I I look at all the business travel that's happening. A lot of these things could be avoided if you really have a much more impressive way, by impressive, I mean by impressions, uh, to interact with people. Basically, you have them uh, not rather basic as a voice, but actually have them almost in a 3D type thing, basically I can focus, I can follow their eyes, where they're going, how they react to your responses, all those type of things, would enrich a lot of those interaction capabilities, and it would avoid for me uh, to have them to step on a plane, waste energy, and basically go to the other side of the world just for a meeting of about a couple of hours, for instance. That's an example. So this, again, it's just striking a balance, and, and where it's all gonna go, we never really can predict, but the bottom line is the technology is there.
6: Well, it sounds like the technology is there. But, you know, Molly, you seem to have some objection to these ubiquitous sensors, and I'm, I'm trying to understand what that is. I don't know, Seth.
2: It, it may be a, a psychological block that I have. Um, I'm not someone who readily adopts technology. I know that sensors are, are around us anyway. Maybe it's just the scale of it, having more
6: sensors everywhere. What what is it the kind of sensors that could spy on you? I mean, you know, in Britain, it's estimated that each Briton is observed more than 100 times a day by video cameras uh, is that the kind of sensors that uh,
2: disturb you? No, and it's nothing in particular, and it's it's not the idea that they'll invade my privacy. Maybe I should have some concerns about that. It's more a psychological block I have with having more machines around me instead of relying on interactions with humans. I want more interactions with humans and, and fewer with machines. But it sounds like you don't feel that way. Do you welcome this world of ubiquitous sensing?
6: Well, I, maybe there is a limit that even I would find too f- going too far, but I haven't heard it yet. For example, Jan was talking about better interfaces to computers and my mom would love to be able to read email from me to be able to send email to be able to get on the computer and uh, look things up and so forth but the interface with the computers whether it's a laptop or any kind of computer a, a pad that's too difficult for her at her age and if she had that chip hey that would improve her life
2: Well, that is the upside of this technology, isn't it? And this is where Jan Rabai sees it going. His focus right now is on developing these sensors, and he wants to create sensors that are tiny and really powerful so that they can transmit wirelessly to this computer interface. The other place where he sees these going is not around us, but actually in us or on our body. And this opens up the possibility of
6: BMI, which is brain-machine interface. I I thought it was body mass index, but I'm glad to hear (laughs) that that it's something less intimidating in the morning, or or maybe it's more so.
4: But there's another area where we are very active in, is in the area of brain-machine interfaces, uh, where you would implant some interfaces close to your uh, cortex, your, uh, basically to your brain tissue. And that would interact with the neurons that basically are operational. So the reason you do that, and, and the reason we're looking to that, is primarily for uh, people with various disabilities. People who have stroke, spinal cord injury, that suddenly lose uh, the capability of moving arm. And what's really happened is you've cut the pathway between the, the motor function, the arm, and the brain functionality. The brain is still perfectly fine. The, the motor cortex is doing all the signaling and all those kind of things, but the signal doesn't go to the arm. So, if I now can capture those signals, those neural signals, and transmit them to either prosthetic device, I can basically restore motion or restore speech to people basically have, for instance, ALS patients or stroke patients, which are speech disabled. So, again, it's basically capturing some signals of the body and then using them to perform certain functions. Basically help people that basically have been disabled.
2: So you're talking, just to be clear, a brain-machine interface is hooking up the human brain, well, hooking up it would be wireless, Mm -hmm. to a machine. So you're going from one set of electrical impulses in the brain to another set of electrical impulses, which are the machine. And I wonder if will come a time where we can't make the distinction between the human brain and a machine.
4: That's, an, again, no, that's pure speculation, obviously, and, and there's, some, there's a lot of things written about this thing. Obviously, the brain works in a certain fashion. Computers work in a different fashion. They're complementary engines. Uh, the brain basically has a certain set of functionality, which is amazing, right? The way it, it computes, the way it does a certain function for very low energy It's absolutely impressive. On the other hand, you have the computers and things like that. They do also impressive things, but in a very different format. So I think they're complementary devices, and they really can go very well together.
2: I am familiar with this concept of brain-machine interface and the idea that one day we might hook our brains up to machines. But when I share this with friends, they just roll their eyes and say, that will never happen. That's just science fiction. Now, I talk to scientists like you who are, are thinking about these things, but I think that the, the public is very skeptical that this is the direction of where computers are headed?
4: Well, um, I actually don't think so. Actually, I believe it's a, it's a very viable direction. Actually, if you look at neuroscience, neuroscience has gone to some very amazing progress in the last decades. There's a lot of things to be learned from there. So it actually, there's a cross-correlation between the two. I think while we're basically you now start imaging the brain, start understanding how neurons talk to each other, how we do certain things, how do we do certain functions like object recognition. We might help uh, inspire how we build the next generation computers that might be more energy efficient, do things more effectively, and so on and so forth. So there's actually a lot of, uh, I think, synergy between the two areas.
2: Jan Rabai, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: You're welcome.
6: Thank you. Yan Rabai is a professor of electrical engineering and computer sciences at the University of California at Berkeley.
2: Well, see, Seth, where your desire for more sensors has led you into this idea of putting sensors in the brain, what do you think about that?
6: Well, I I, I see some interesting applications right away. And it occurred to me that, you know, I'm driving up the freeway and suddenly all the traffic stops and i got to slam on the brakes. My brain thinks of that right away because the eyes get to the brain quickly. But it takes a long time for that info to get down to my foot to step on the brake. If I had that sensor, my car would know that I want to stop. It probably save me a lot of fender bender action. But would you really welcome a sensor, a chip, or some sensors in your own brain? One thing does disturb me a little bit about it, and that is the idea that, you know, somebody else might have a sensor in their brain and I'm talking to them or I'm showing them what I'm looking at or they can read my thoughts, and this idea of telepathy Somehow I do find disturbing. (laughs) Can can I turn that chip off?
2: I have to say the idea of being
6: able to read your thoughts directly is disturbing.
2: You're absolutely right. Uh, You know, there are different degrees of this. Probably illegal. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what your thoughts would be. But there are different degrees of how this technology might be used, this brain-machine interface. It could be something that you wear on your head or it could actually be a chip in your brain itself. All these technologies are being developed in parallel, parallel processing, if you will.
6: But in some areas, this new technology is not just pie in the sky. It's already begun to invade the commercial market. Coming up, ready to do a Google search with your mind? No, I'm not. (laughs) Well, all right. Well, how about a game of mind-controlled tennis? Is that your racket?
2: (laughs) I might go for that. Also, the effort to map all the neural pathways of the brain. Are you wired for thought? We are on Big Picture Science.
6: We're thinking deep thoughts on big picture science. We've heard about the future of brain-machine interface, but where does it begin?
2: Some say it has already, with games. Now, we heard a father and son playing ball earlier. Ball with their minds, that is.
3: Ready, begin. My name is Gordy Slack, and I'm playing with my son, Leo. Oh, I got it. What are you thinking about when you do that? I just have to, like, relax or something. You have to
2: explain to me what it is that you're doing.
3: I'm playing uh, this game with my son. We're wearing headsets that measure our brainwaves, and we try to move a floating ball back and forth between us uh, with our focused concentration.
0: Player two
2: wins. Player one, that was tragic.
3: And so you made me lose.
2: So you're saying that that blue ball that's moving back and forth like that, you're moving that with your mind?
3: Well, our minds are sending signals to the headset and depending on the signals that the headset reads from our brains, it moves the ball forward or back, yes, in the game.
2: What is your strategy for winning? So I sort
4: of just have to, like, relax. It's right before dinner, maybe because I'm hungry. It's making it good for me to be able to, like, concentrate on this and only this. When
2: you concentrate, what are you concentrating on? You're just thinking move, ball, move, or what are you thinking? I'm sort of thinking, like, go forward. I don't know. So just like trying to concentrate on moving it. And it makes a difference if you're concentrating or not as to whether or not the ball moves. Yeah, definitely. Now it looks like there's a little bit of air, a puff of air that comes up that keeps the ball aloft. So the ball stays aloft, but then whether it goes towards you or away from you has to do with what you're thinking about.
3: Well, and you'll notice that sometimes the ball is floating higher than other times. The ball floats at a height that is driven by the combination of our focus. So if we're both really focused, the ball gets really high, and that shows that we're really battling each other.
2: This is quite different from the board games I used to play growing up, where you had little pieces that you physically moved with your hands. You're telling me that you're really moving this ball with your mind.
3: You are moving the ball with your mind, but it's not simply by forcing it with your mind you actually there's like a zone that you need to find where the ball moves quite easily and it's kind of a combination of focused attention and relaxation so you need to kind of zoom in on the ball with your mind and then then it starts to move what is this game called this game is called mind flex
2: Uh, it's really cheesy name okay well i'll let you resume ready am i disturbing your focus now
3: Yes, don't talk to me.
2: And you're succeeding in getting the ball to go away from you. I'm trying to. Does it help if I talk to you? It's
4: actually going to make me lose.
3: Ah. You did that. You did that to him. I don't think, I didn't
4: actually (laughs) lose. I didn't lose. I did not claim
3: victory, no.
4: Play again.
6: You know, Molly, this is so intriguing. Did you try asking one or the other of the players to, you know, lie back and think of England or just think of something else and see whether the ball moved? Well, I didn't ask them to
2: think of England, but there is a little monitor there that supposedly shows how hard you're concentrating. And when I spoke with either Leo or Gordy, the level on that little monitor dropped and then the ball would move towards the other player. So interfering with their Concentration did have an effect on the game.
6: Okay, so it sounds like the machinery was for real in some sense.
2: It is real, and it is spooky to see because they're both wearing these headsets that go over their heads and then like something that clips onto their ear with a little LED that lights up and then this game that's making all these sounds and this ball that's moving back and forth.
6: It's not your granddad's Parcheesi.
2: No, it's definitely not that, and it gives a new meaning to the phrase, let's play ball. <laughs> oh. Games like MindFlex that require a brain-sensing interface such as an EEG headset may not only be the future of play
6: but they could just be the forerunner of a more intimate relationship with computers that's to come.
2: Now I think it's obvious that I was a little startled by this vision of Gordy and his son wearing these headsets so I appealed to Bradley Wojtek a neuroscientist at the University of California San Francisco to explain or maybe reassure me as to how this game MindFlex works.
1: What happens basically is when you put these electrodes on your head, which is what MindFlex has, it's a system of EEG electrodes, uh, they pick up electrical signals from, well, supposedly your brain, and translate that into some kind of action on a computer screen, for example. So if you're playing a video game and you want to move forward, the best brain-computer interface would have you think, move forward, and it would have you move forward. That's not really what's going on with MindFlex, but someday, hopefully, that's where we'll be.
2: So what you're saying is that Gordy and his son are wearing these headsets, right? And they're picking up brain waves from the two of them and transmitting them to the game, and that's what makes the ball move back and forth.
1: Well, so brain waves is a little bit of a difficult term, right? As a neuroscientist, we can be a little bit more specific, but I like to explain it by way of an analogy. Imagine you're you're at a football stadium, and it's a domed stadium and you have a microphone outside the stadium. You can really clearly hear when somebody scores a touchdown, for example, because everybody will erupt, but you have no idea which team scored the touchdown. You don't know which side of the stadium it came from, necessarily. So it's a really rough estimate of activity, of neural activity. What's interesting about these kinds of at-home systems, though, is if you actually take your hand and you put it at the corner, outside corner of your eye and move up about two inches and bite down really hard, you'll feel a, a big muscle move. And that's actually one of the uh, muscles that control your jaw. And it's electrical activity that moves your muscles. It's much higher in amplitude than the brain waves that's picked up underneath.
2: But still, it's, the ball is moving without either one of them touching it. And so how is it that you could pick up muscle activity or electrical activity from the neurons or thoughts or anything like that and translate it into an action that would cause this ball to move at all?
1: Well, what you're actually recording is electrical activity. That's all you're recording. And so if you have some kind of input signal, either brain activity or muscle activity, you're basically just translating some kind of biological signal through a computer to do some sort of external action. And, you know, my engineering friends will say that for a brain-computer interface, it doesn't matter where the signal is coming from. It doesn't matter if it's coming from the brain or a muscle or anything, as long as it works, right? As long as it can get something to work reliably, that's all you need.
2: No. Have you played a game like this where you put on a headset and you can, you either play a game or interact with a computer or move a ball, anything like that?
1: I haven't actually played any of these at-home uh, systems, but colleagues of mine have played these kinds of games before, and they've also we've we've done research in this area. And so one of the projects that my lab, when I was doing my PhD worked on, was uh, people who have brain surgery. And the electrodes are actually being implanted under the skull, so we don't have to worry about this kind of muscle activity. Of course, you're not gonna want to do this at home. But with this kind of interface, uh, you can get really clean, clear signals so that you have somebody, you know, try and move a cursor on the screen in a certain direction. And we're actually picking up electrical activity over the motor parts of their brain in these studies. And so that works really well.
2: So it sounds like there are a couple different ways to do this. One is with a game like this, a children's game like this, you wear a headset, it's not invasive at all, and you pick up brain waves or muscle activity, and it's probably fairly weak. But you could pick up much stronger brain waves if you implant something in the brain itself. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the breakthrough research that's been done in brain-computer interfacing by neuroscience uh, researchers is actually invasive research so either in people or in animals that have these electrodes implanted Uh, again because like i said the signal is much better you know but you can you can really use any kind of neuroimaging signal as an input device so people have actually done this with fmri which is very very slow heavy large machine and they've had people play pong two people sitting in an fmri machine simultaneously and so you can use pretty much any kind of signal to drive an electrical game system
2: Say more about wiring the brain to an electrode directly. I mean, you state that slightly, matter of fact, but that's intensive surgery, and you're talking about actually wiring neurons, individual neurons or a group of them, to a computer chip, or how would that work?
1: I I guess I've been doing this for so long that I forget sometimes that it's pretty intense stuff. In the research that I have done and still do, it's called electrocorticography. So, uh, the at home systems do electroencephalography, which is, I'll break that down really quickly electro meaning electrical, uh, encephalo meaning head, and graph being measurement. Electrocorticography is actually measuring directly off of the, the neocortex, the outside part of the brain. And this is actually done in collaboration with neurosurgeons for patients who are undergoing surgery for epilepsy. People who have intractable epilepsy, so seizures that aren't responding to medications, for example. The surgeons actually have to go in and figure out exactly what part of the brain is causing the seizures. And the surgeons, in order to map, precisely that brain region have to implant these electrodes into these people's brains Uh, and then they monitor the the patients for uh, sometimes up to a week and these patients are sitting in their hospital room and they've got these electrodes implanted in their brain and they're sitting in the room for a week and they're just waiting and so we actually go in and we ask you know the patients if they'd be willing to to participate in some research so we're really piggybacking on a medical procedure. We're just going in and saying, well, since these electrodes are already there, would you mind participating in some kinds of research for us? So we do things like brain computer interfacing to see if we can can have them control a cursor on a screen, for example. This has two benefits. Not only is it potentially hopefully someday useful for people who are paralyzed to help them say move a wheelchair just by thinking about it but it's also really good from a basic science standpoint we can learn how does the motor cortex encode movements how do the motor parts of the brain even coordinate the muscles things like that up to my interest which is a higher level cognitive thing how do we recall memories how do we even pay attention to something in the first place which is my interest
2: I wonder where this technology is headed and whether or not brain-machine interface will become commonplace so that it's it's not just for people to compensate for limited mobility, but that all of us one day will be hooked up in this very intimate way to our computers.
1: Well, I, in a lot of ways it depends on what you mean when you say brain-computer interface. Really what what matters is the effector, right? And by that I mean what is your brain controlling and how is it translating thought into action really that's what we that's what matters right and in a lot of ways you know your mouse and keyboard on your computer are in some sense a brain computer interface you're translating your thought into motor commands that press buttons and and create an action and the technology seems to be going in such a way that the effector is getting closer and closer to the brain and we're removing the intermediate steps we're removing the keyboards we're removing the mice So the reason that we have these effectors is because of technological limitations, right? Uh, So mice and keyboards are intermediate effectors, translating thought into action. And as the technology gets better, and as we learn how to deal with noise better, and as we understand what the brain is doing better, in theory, there's no reason that we can't have more direct interfacing.
2: Is it something that we want, though? Can you see that there's a there's a benefit to this direct interfacing with our computers? <laughs>
1: uh, what we as a society want and what we as a society adopt, I think, are, are sometimes not necessarily one and the same. I don't know if I would ever say that I want to have email at my fingertips all day, every day with my smartphone. But now we have it and I, I've grown accustomed to it. And... Uh, I think that these kinds of technologies are—they're are, going to happen eventually. You know, maybe five years, maybe 50 years, but they'll just become a part of our lives. I think.
2: So, so the email will no longer be at your fingertips. It'll be in your brainwaves. You could do Google searches with your mind or check your inbox with just a thought.
1: I don't know if it will ever get that good with non-invasive types of recording, but, you know, I have a friend who always jokes with me that this is something he wants. He always says, when are we going to get Google in our heads because I'm tired of having to type all this stuff out. So people definitely want this stuff.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
6: Bradley Wojtek is a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco.
2: What I find interesting about what Bradley Voytek is saying is that there are different levels that we might interface with our brains with computers in the future. You might put on an EEG headset. But the other thing is what Jan Rabai talked about earlier in the show, which is implanting something in the brain that's minimally invasive. But if you hear what Bradley's talking about, what some neuroscientists have done with patients who have epilepsy, they have gone actually into the brain itself and wired up neurons to electrodes, and that is full-on invasive.
6: Yeah. As a personal matter, I prefer the non-invasive approach. I, I guess that's why I use glasses and I you know, haven't had that uh, eye surgery.
2: I should tell you, though, there are some neuroscientists who do think that the full-on invasive implant will be the future of brain-machine interface. You heard that Bradley Wojtek was cautious about that, whether or not we'd ever do that. But there are neuroscientists out there who have not not only say that that's what's coming, they're beginning to do trials on such things.
6: Do you think they'll use themselves as uh, their own lab rats?
2: I don't think you can implant a chip into your own brain, but I'm sure they'll take volunteers if you're up for it.
6: All this talk about brains... Connecting to our brains, inside, outside of our heads, brain waves. But what's in a brain, anyway? Okay, you got your neurons. Okay, those are the brain cells. Check. Axons. The long projections at the ends of nerve cells that carry the electrical signals. Check. Synapses. The junction points where neurons communicate with one another and where the electrical signals turned into a chemical signal. Check. Check.
2: There's more, like glial cells, but what we have so far will get us started. All right,
6: Neurons, axons, synapses. Okay. But how many are there? Well, let's do the numbers.
2: At least 90 billion neurons in the human brain.
6: 150 trillion synapses. 100 miles of axons. And to put that one in perspective, Mount Everest is only 5 miles high. Well, that's a lot of brain matter packed into one skull.
2: Speaking of geography, it took cartographers and explorers 500 years since the beginning of the 16th century to map in detail the hills, valleys, mountains, and crevasses of the Earth. Now neuroscientists want a similarly detailed map
6: of the human brain, and they want it in five years. The Human Connectome Project involves more than two dozen scientists in research institutions across the country, including at UCLA, where neurologist Arthur Toga takes advantage of high-tech machines to map the connections between our neurons.
2: And also determine how those neuronal superhighways function.
6: Arthur, what does it mean to map the brain's circuitry, which apparently is the goal of the Human Connectome Project? Well, it
7: means exactly what it says. The point is that we want to understand the highways and the byways of the human brain. And by that, I mean establish the connections between one region and another, both anatomically, which is the wires themselves, or the neurons, as we would say, as well as how they work. What is the function between those two areas?
6: So this sounds to me like a pretty difficult thing to do. I mean, I could maybe map the inner workings of my computer here, but that wouldn't tell me how it actually works. It would just show where all the parts are. You're you're doing more than that.
7: Well, we're doing more than that because there are a lot of different ways for us to make that map. So, for example, we can make a map that shows the anatomy, the structure of the human brain. We can also make a map that shows its function, how it works. And furthermore, we can do that using a variety of techniques. Everybody's heard of MRI. We can use that technique. We can use measurements of the uh, electrical activity, the chemoelectrical activity within the brain, and we can make all kinds of other measurements. And by combining all that information, we can get a picture, literally a picture, that shows us the structure and the function of regions of the brain.
6: So you have more than just the parts. You also can show which way the information is routed within the brain
7: that's exactly right so when we are performing a particular task or or exhibiting any behavior even this conversation that we're having different parts of the brain contribute to that behavior differently at different times and we can make maps of that that are showing how that circuitry is working in order for us to perform that task, speaking and understanding.
6: Can you give me some idea of at what level of detail you're talking about here? I mean, you know, uh, are we down to the size of an individual neuron or a a whole group of neurons?
7: Oh, I wish we were down to that size. We're not quite. So, that's a good point the resolution that we have is generally around about one millimeter uh, which is really quite small but not as small as neurons many many thousands of neurons fit within a single millimeter so we are not to the level of looking at individual cells by any means but we can still learn a great deal by looking at the resolution that we can have I do want to point out one other thing that that your audience needs to understand and that is When one conceives of a map, if you're looking at Los Angeles, for example, we know where the 405 is, we know where Route 10 is, we know where all the freeways are, because there's only one of each. But when you're trying to map the human brain, we have to account for the fact that there are as many brains as there are people that we map. And so we have to understand the variability across these individuals, and that, in fact, is part of the task that faces
6: us. Well, two things there with your analogy. I, th- I find that interesting. Uh, you talk about mapping Los Angeles. It's largely two-dimensional, whereas the brain is three-dimensional. It sounds to me like that's that's a tougher problem because these freeways in the brain, if you will, <laughs> they, they can, you know, intertwine with one another, go up, down, and, and cross one another in the way that uh, the streets on the city uh, don't do.
7: Well, it's worse than that. Uh, as you point out there are more dimensions in the human brain than you might find on a two-dimensional map of freeways there are three dimensions of space but there's also the dimension of time so your brain is constantly changing it changes from the day you're born or in fact from the day you are conceived all the way to the day you die and it, it has a normal change that may occur but there are also changes that are a result of neurological degenerative diseases for example or other disorders And it also changes as part of our experience. We can't necessarily see that as easily as we might see other changes, but the brain is constantly adapting to its experience, and that's part of the way in which we learn things. And so we have a four-dimensional problem, three dimensions of space and one of time.
2: Hold on right there, and we'll return to Seth's conversation with Arthur Toga in a moment. You're listening to Big Picture Science.
0: I'm Jane Perlez
2: We return to Seth's conversation with Arthur Toga about the Human Connectome Project.
6: It seems to me that if you wanted to use this technique to investigate uh, various, I don't know, deficiencies in the brain, uh, diseases, what uh, strange behaviors, whatever that you would need some sort of baseline, some sort of here's your ISO standard brain. So I have to ask you the question that I, I suppose they asked Craig Venter when he worked on the Human Genome Project, namely whose DNA was being mapped, and in that case I believe it was Craig Venter's, <laughs> but whose, whose brain's being mapped?
7: Well, in our case, uh, we literally are mapping thousands of subjects. So these are ours are our normal subjects. Uh, we ask for volunteers to participate in these studies. Uh, And it allows us to create maps so that we can still understand the variability, so that we could ask, for example, our database, which is what we create, literally the map is a database, and we can say to the database, show me what a 25-year-old male right-handed person's brain looks like. And we can do that. And we could say, now compare that with a left-handed 65-year-old woman's brain what are the differences? And because our map is based upon a collection of literally thousands of human brains, it allows us to understand this variability and how it may relate to something like handedness or gender or some other variable that you're
6: interested in. We're talking about, I believe, something like 100 billion neurons in a human brain with 150 trillion synapses Now you're not mapping it down to that final level, but nonetheless, this is an enormous machine, if you want to call it a machine. How long is it going to take you to do this?
7: How long is it going to take us to map the Earth? So we have a map today. You can find, as I said before, the freeways of Los Angeles. We can even map the depths of the oceans. We can do that via satellite now. But we don't know, for, for a fact, all the meteorological patterns, the relationship between Earth temperature and wind patterns in certain regions of the of the planet so it's a constant activity to ever improve our maps with more detail deeper understanding about the relationships between different types of measurements and the very same thing is true in our map of the human brain this is a quest that will continue the human brain is by far the most complex organ that we have it's what makes us who we are And I think the challenge for us is to develop systems that allow ever more information to be introduced to these maps so that their detail and their comprehension is improved over time.
6: Well, finally, Arthur, you know, the brain has always been a mystery to us. Uh, It seems that at the beginning of the 21st century, we may actually pull back the veil of mystery a little bit. And if we can do that, won't we eventually have a brain in a computer? I mean, won't we have a thinking computer if we can kind of simulate our own brains therein?
7: Well, for me, you know, I've studied the brain my entire life, and I think it is by far the most wondrous organ that a person can study. It is the organ that makes us who we are. It allows basketball players to shoot a basket from a long way away. It allows a concert pianist to develop music that you could only dream of. And I think that studying something as wondrous as that will continue forevermore. And I think as a scientist, it's a great privilege to be able to bring to bear some relatively crude techniques to help us understand what little we can, but the degree to which we will fully understand the brain isn't likely to
6: happen in my lifetime. Arthur Toga, thank you so much for uh, sharing your brain with us today. Thank you.
2: Los Angeles is where you'll find the 405, also called the San Diego Freeway, and near it, the UCLA School of Medicine, where Arthur Toga is Professor of Neurology and Director of the Laboratory of Neuroimaging.
6: The brain is one complicated piece of biological hardware. So, not surprisingly, a large team of researchers is engaged in studying its structure and its functions. But who's in charge of them? The university chancellors? Grant agencies? No, not the people who sign
2: their paychecks. Who's in charge of them as individual human beings? And not just them, but any of us. Is it us or our brains? And what's the difference? Neuroscientist Michael Gazanica says there's so much processing that goes on in our brains that's automatic. All this stuff that we're unaware of, even when we think we're in control, that it raises a question about our own command of our lives. It's all in his recent book, Who's in Charge? Free Will and the Science of the Brain.
6: Mike, you write that when it comes to human beings, you are your brain. So what does that really mean?
5: What we're trying to communicate there is that all of the... uh psychological things that you and I enjoy being human are generated by your brain, and brain science is figuring out how it gets that job done.
6: All right, but when I think of myself, I think of myself in terms of my conscious mind. I don't think about the unconscious stuff, and yet our consciousness is only sort of a little bit of foam on the ocean of who we are, so are we not really in control of
5: ourselves? Well, it is true that 99.9% of us is going on outside of our conscious awareness. Everything from just pointing to uh, an object on the wall to uh, generating the sentence uh, that I'm doing right now, all that is using a multi-agent system, a modular system underneath that's all cooperating in some way to give me a common functional output. How that works, we don't know ultimately how it works, but that it goes on below our conscious experience uh, is uh, absolutely correct. And yet, that remaining part of our brain activity that allows us to be phenomenally aware, we are very, very involved in wanting to believe that we act freely and making our choices with that conscious uh, moment that we all have.
6: Well, part of this, I suppose, has to do with the functionality of the brain, and you've been doing a lot of work on that. And it seems that the right-hand part of our brain, the right-hand hemisphere, may be taking in objective information about the world, I presume, from our senses and so forth. But it's the left-hand brain that brings that to our consciousness, that that interprets it.
5: Well, the way to look at it is that both hemispheres are involved in processes that can lead to conscious experience. But there's a special feature in the left hemisphere, something we have called an interpreter, that... That seems to pull together and find meaning in all the behaviors that all these other separate systems can produce, whether they be emotive, whether they be actual perceptual acts, cognitive acts, whatever it is and it this interpreter weaves a story into a narrative, and that narrative becomes us. that narrative becomes our story, and each of us has a story that is generated by the special features humans seem to have in their left brain, like for instance, if you see. Uh, One ball come up and hit another ball, like on a billiard ball table, and when the one ball hits the other and you think that ball caused the other ball to move, that is a perception of causality that we know goes on in the left hemisphere of the brain. So when you're conscious of that, that's what's producing that. Okay. But in general, how
6: accurate is this interpreter that's uh, portraying the world for me, or my, my view of the world?
5: Well, in general, it's very accurate. In general, things happen to us in a straightforward way, and we make an inference and have a hypothesis about that, and that becomes part of our worldview as to what's going on, and usually what's going on around us is uh, very orderly. It's great, and it's also the same system that makes you think you're in charge of your actions, even though that's probably a different story.
6: Well, that's an interesting story, though, because I like to think that I'm in charge of my actions. I like to think that I have free will. Uh, is that in doubt?
5: The concept of free will is dated. It's a concept that came out of a time when people wanted an excuse to have a thing. A, a, there is an essentialism out there that you, the, the ephemeral you, Seth, has to be in charge and responsible for their actions. And The brain sciences have shown, well, that's actually not how that part works. That we're learning more about. But when it comes to the question of are you responsible for your actions, I say absolutely yes, because that is to be understood and determined at another level. That's the kind of thing you get when people interact. So my tagline is, well, brains may be automatic, and I think brains are automatic. People are free. It's the rules that happen when more than one person exists in the world. And that will always be with us no matter how much we come to learn about the mechanisms of the brain.
6: There was an article about this in the New York Times, uh, in which they described your work, and you commented on the impact of brain research on, for example, criminal cases. Uh, And in particular, it sounds like what you're saying is that, well, those hidden subroutines in their brains, you know, pushing them to do something like uh, steal something or or, uh, aggressively treat somebody uh, in a way that the law forbids, you know, maybe, well, they're not really
5: responsible. It's a part of their brain they can't get to. I don't buy it. I have a very uh, strict line on that. People can follow rules, and one of the rules that you commit to when you're part of a social group is that you're going to be held accountable as you are holding me accountable for my actions. To give away the concept that someone is not responsible for their action is way, way too much and and is unnecessary. That's, That's not how to capture or frame the problem.
6: What about the possibility of uh, looking into the brains of uh, criminals and seeing whether indeed they, you know, they, they were conscious of what they were doing? Can, can we do that? Should we do that?
5: I don't think that that's going to change anything one way or the other. It's still the fact that you are to be held responsible for your actions because it is at the level of social interaction that that concept even has any meaning. Look, why would anybody want to build or have a brain that uh, when it decides on a course of action all of a sudden has some random generator in there?
6: Mike, the brain is occasionally likened to a, you know, a supercomputer. It's often called the most complex thing we've ever found in the cosmos. But is that just sort of an artifact of living uh, when we do? I mean, is this a very good analogy? Is it even useful?
5: Well, it's useful uh, to some extent in the sense that the computer is a layered system and so is the brain. So there's, a, there's the well-known the hardware-software uh, layers in the computer world. And what's interesting about it is that when you talk about, well, how does it work? I mean, the computer without the software doesn't have any use, and the software without the hardware doesn't have any use. And it's only when they begin to interact that you get functionality. And so the challenge of neuroscience for the next 100 years is to understand when the brain, which enables the mind, and the mind that is enabled interact. Somehow that interaction of those layers is going to tell us the true language for understanding the functionality of the mind-brain interaction. We're not there yet.
6: What about the possibility expressed by some researchers that will create a you know, a really good brain-machine interface and hook ourselves uh,
5: directly up to computers. Well, people talk about the fact that uh, we already have uh, devices to help us. We have all our PDAs for our phone numbers. Uh, we have uh, our little uh, iPads where we can Google anything in the world, we are already become so dependent on external devices. It's actually been shown in some recent studies that when we look at the information on our laptop, we know which folder we put it in, but we don't know what we put in there. We've, we've already downloaded it to another device, but we know where to go look it up. So and, and this is just the beginning, and there, I think, will be more organically connected devices that will uh, assist and manage our cognitive process. That's a long way away.
6: Well, I would certainly personally look forward to some improvement in my own cognitive ability (laughs) if I could plug in a chip and do that. (laughs) I'm in line in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) But but I got to say, I mean, that's the upside that maybe would improve my performance or behavior or something. But would this maybe deprive me of a little bit of free will? I mean, maybe you could program the chip. You know, some people are programmed for bad behavior and others are programmed for good behavior, whatever.
5: You never know. I think a more immediate example is the drones that our military is uh, using with greater frequency. And the question is, when they become autonomous drones, in other words, they'll be programmed to make local decisions. At which point do we uh, wonder, well, now are uh, are we going to assign them responsibility for their decisions, which will all be made by a computer? We haven't thought completely through how we're going to deal with that.
6: Finally, Mike, I, I walk through life and I think that I know what's going on with me. I am aware of my own existence, unlike the pigeons outside the window here. But that seems to be an illusion because I'm not particularly aware of what my brain's doing to aid my digestion or keep my heart beating or any of those things. <laughs> and, and so if I think about it, and I don't often, but if I think about it, I kind of wonder what's really going on. I have this brain it's doing, all, it's doing zillions of things. And I somehow have this coherent view that I exist and that I'm in charge of it all.
5: Well, I have to go back to, uh, I think, the contribution that that we made over the years is that there is this special device in your left brain that tries to weave all of your actions, all of your thoughts, all of your emotions into a coherent story as to what it all means. And I think that's what we do. And that becomes very much our, our personal identity. I'm personally counting on mine. (laughs)
6: <laughs> Mike Gazanica, thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, your conscious thoughts with us today. Thank you.
2: Michael Gazzaniga is a neuroscientist, the director of the University of California, Santa Barbara's SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind, and the author of Who's in Charge? Free Will and the Science of the Brain. Thanks to our brainy production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler.
6: And also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to
2: our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Wired for Thought. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link... On our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
6: If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio instead, either for moral reasons or simply because you're peculiar that way, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
2: Want to play a game of ball, Seth?
6: Game on. Player one
0: wins. I like the way you think. Player 2, your neurons appear to be misfiring.
1: Want to support the show but are too busy surfing the net and shopping for shoes online?
3: We've got the fix. Go to BigPictureScience.org's support page and download the Good Search toolbar. It takes less than a minute. The radio show will get a penny for every
2: search and even more when you make purchases from the Good Shop. Make Big Picture Science your charity of choice and support us without any cost to you. Good Search and Big Picture Science, searching that makes a difference.